Let's turn our Bibles, please, to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Today we come to the last in our series on the family, and uh, next Sunday we will start a series on, that we're calling Controlling Your Life, Getting Control of Your Life. In our series on the family, we haven't had much to say directly about singles, and yet, of course, singles are in families, involved in families, often, if not living with their families. I'm reminded of uh, Chuck Swindoll telling of a letter he got from a lady who said that uh, uh, she really didn't worry a lot about getting married, although she began to uh, get to her late 20s and early 30s. But uh, she did do this. Uh, every night, she hung a pair of men's pants on the bed, uh, and she knelt down and she prayed. Father in heaven, hear my prayer, and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. <laughs> uh, which she proceeded to do. Uh, <clears throat> Chuck Swindoll uh, read that uh, letter to his congregation. Uh, one mother who wasn't at the service, but her teenage son uh, or her young uh, son in her young 20s, in her early 20s uh, was, and uh, later she asked Chuck if he could understand and explain to her why her son was hanging a bikini at the foot of his bed each night. Uh, <clears throat> let me uh, read you uh, from another article that uh, contains a powerful description of lost love. Speaking of a couple, somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they had lost each other. Slowly the wall between them rose, cemented by a mortar of indifference. And one day, reaching out to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate. And recalling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For when love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle. It lies panting and exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a carefully built wall that it could not penetrate. What a powerful description of what happens in so many cases. What happened in the, that family? Could it be that uh, one or more of what James Dobson calls the marriage killers got them? He details what he calls the marriage killers, overcommitment and physical exhaustion or excessive use of credit, or selfishness, interference from in-laws, unrealistic expectations, space invaders, actions that violate the breathing room of your spouse, smothering, jealousy, low self-esteem, alcohol or other substance abuse, pornography, gambling, and other addictions, 
Sexual frustration, loneliness, low self-esteem, and the greener grass of infidelity. Business failure. Business success. Getting married too young. Twelve things that can be devastating to a marriage. A doctor in our church uh, wrote me in the middle of this series uh, expressing appreciation and saying that uh, to him uh, a major factor in broken homes is the number of women who have gone into the workforce. He says, a common denominator that seems to prevail in my opinion as I counsel and in the opinion of many of my Christian friends is the impact of married women in the, work, in the workplace. Uh, he says, this sometimes seems to ex- expose them to unnecessary temptations as well as draw them away from the priorities uh, of husband and family. He says, unfortunately, I see a changing attitude within the church that has made the full-time working wife or mother an acceptable option, and that troubles me. Well, if you are single, the barrier doesn't have to be between you and, of course, a spouse, but could be between you and a parent. Uh, you and uh, someone at the workplace, you and a friend. Now, what's the solution when these walls go up between us, whether in the family or at the workplace or wherever? What's the solution? The solution is love, agape love. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Uh, the Greek word agapao, uh, and uh, of course Jesus also said to all of us, "This is my commandment that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another." What is the definition of love? Well, this love, this agape love, is a principle by which we deliberately live. It it involves our will. It's not so much an emotion. It has to do with our behavior and it has to do with the choices that we make, our will. It's the unconditional acceptance of another person, flaws and all. The distinction between uh, infatuation and love. Infatuation, someone has said, is like a huge ice cream cone. It soon melts, but love is enduring. It lasts. Or infatuation demands exclusive attention and devotion. It's jealous of outsiders, where authentic love is built built on self-acceptance, and we're not threatened by someone else. And and so we can unselfishly share our partner, in a sense, and let them have other relations. Infatuation is characterized by exploiting and direct need gratification, whereas authentic love seeks to aid and strengthen the loved one without striving for recompense. Ed Wheat, in uh, one of his books, says, Agape is the answer for all the wanderings of marriage. This love has the capacity 
to persist in the face of rejection and continue on when there is no response at all. It can leap over walls uh, that would stop any human love cold. Notice the comparison with Christ's love. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Or this commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. What kind of love did Christ have for us? Was it, uh, I'll give my 50 if you give your 50 kind of love? He gave his 100 when we hadn't given any, didn't he? Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was a sacrificial love. And the goal of his love, it says he gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. He gave himself to remove the guilt of our sin and to change our lives. He took our guilt upon himself as the Son of God and died in our stead so that when we commit our lives to him, there's no barrier now. For God forgiving us. Our sin is paid for. And when we surrender our wills to Christ, I will obey you. And we put our trust in him. I trust you to cleanse this sinner. Then we are united to Christ. And his goal begins to be accomplished. And he might sanctify and cleanse it. What does this love look like? Husbands, love your wives. Love one another. What does that love look like? Well, Paul over in 1 Corinthians 13 details it. Remember, uh, he gives us there a long description of love, some 15 characteristics of love. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, that verse 4, Love suffers long and is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't vaunt itself, is not puffed up. It suffers long, is patient. Slow to be roused to resentment. Forgive 70 times 70. Uh, It's kind. It's willing to place itself at the disposal of others. Looks for ways to help. Uh, Doesn't make uh, cutting, sarcastic remarks. Country and Western music, of course, uh, often uh, deals with lost love affairs and, and romances that have broken up. And some of the lines are just classics as far as cutting remarks, sarcastic remarks. One, one goes like this. When she bleached her hair, it frosted me. <laughs> Another one says, if you want to keep your beer cold, put it next to my ex-wife's heart. Another one, I wouldn't take you to the dog fights even if I thought you could win. <laughs> Well, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't make those kind of remarks. Uh, Love envieth not. It's not jealous of people. It finds joy in giving, not in getting. Uh, It gives the other spouse uh, a person space to develop their potential. Love vaunteth not itself. It doesn't boast. It's not puffed up. It uh, isn't conceited or proud. Rather, it's humble. Humble enough to think the other party may know something and may uh, have some wise concepts. Love uh, doesn't behave itself unseemly, isn't rude. Rather, it's courteous. 
Love seeketh not its own. It isn't selfish. Paul writes to the Philippian church about Timothy, and he says, I'm going to send Timothy, for I have no man who is like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things that are Christ Jesus. Love seeketh not its own. Rather, it, it seeks to meet the other person's needs. What are the other person's needs? What are men's needs? What are women's needs? An article in Challenge magazine, How to Affair Proof Your Marriage, talks about that. It says the five most basic marital needs for a man and the way he would like to, his wife to meet those needs are as follows. Sexual fulfillment. Uh, together they learn to have a sexual relationship that is satisfying and enjoyable to both. Two, recreational companionship. Uh, she develops mutual recre recreational interests with her husband. I remember telling my wife one time, you know, we don't do anything together. Uh, you have uh, ballet, I play tennis. <clears throat> uh, we need to have something we do together. I'm not going to take up ballet. <clears throat> Why don't you take up tennis? And uh, so she did, and that gave us uh, some mutual recreational interests. An attractive spouse. She keeps herself physically fit with diet and exercise. She wears her hair and makeup and clothes in a way that her husband finds attractive and tasteful. Domestic support. She creates a home that offers him a refuge from the stresses of life. Admiration. She reminds him of his capabilities and helps him maintain his self-confidence. She's genuinely proud of her husband. The five most basic marital needs of a wife, and the way she would like her husband to meet those needs, are as follows. Number one, affection. He gives her plenty of hugs and kisses. He tells her how much he cares for her with a steady flow of words and cards and gifts and common courtesies, conversation. He talks with her at the feeling level, honesty and openness. He explains his plans and activities and listens to her reactions. Financial support. He firmly shoulders the responsibilities to house, feed, and clothe his family. Family commitment. He commits sufficient time and energy to the moral and intellectual development of the children. For example, he reads to them, engages in sports with them, takes them on outings. He does not play the fool's game of working long hours trying to get ahead while his children and spouse languish in neglect. Love seeks not its own. It seeks to meet the other person's needs, and we've got some feel of those needs. Love is not easily provoked. It isn't irritable, touchy. Love thinketh no evil. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't hold grudges. It rejoices not in iniquity, slow to expose the fault of others. Rather, it rejoices in the truth. Believeth all things, at, uh, or beareth all things, excuse me, it takes mistreatment and puts up with it in a sense. It believeth all things, readily credits what men say in their own defense, puts the best construction on things. Hopeth all things, hopes for the best with regard to others. Endureth all things, bears up uh, under assaults of uh, uh, self, 
suffering, assaults of suffering or persecution. A little poem that puts it like this. Love ever gives, forgives, outlives, and ever stands with open hands, and while it lives, it gives. For this is love's prerogative, to give and give and give. Well, we see the pattern. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Christ says, love one another. Here's what that love looks like. Let me give you a picture of that kind of love. Ed Wheat tells about his parents. He says, let me illustrate this with a case history. The most beautiful example of agape love that I have observed personally In this case, a man loved his wife tenderly and steadfastly for a total of 15 years without any responding love on her part. There could be no response. She had developed cerebral arterial sclerosis and the chronic brain syndrome. At the outset of the disease, she was a pretty, vivacious lady of 60 who looked ten years younger. But as time went on, she would become confused. Finally, he had to take away the keys of her car. As the disease progressed, she gradually lost all of her mental faculties and did not even recognize her husband. He took care of her at home by himself for the first five years. During that time, he often took her for visits. She, looking her prettiest, although she had no idea of where she was, and he proudly displaying her as his wife, introducing her to everyone, and even though her remarks were apt to be inappropriate, he never made an apology for her, never indicated there was anything wrong with what she had said. He showered her with love and attention. The time came when the doctor said she had to go into a nursing home for intensive care. She lived there for ten years, And he was with her daily. Uh, He never made a negative comment about her. He did not begrudge the large amount of money required to keep her in the home all those years. Never even hinted it might be a problem. In fact, he never complained about any detail of her care throughout the long illness. This man was loyal, always true to his wife, even though his love had no response for 15 years. This is agape. Not in theory, but in practice. He says, what my father taught me about agape love through his example, I can never forget. Well, notice the generation of love. Where does this kind of love come from? How do you get that kind of love? First, it, it comes in the new birth. When you come to know Jesus Christ personally. See, I believed all about Jesus Christ for years. But I didn't have a personal relationship with him. I had not experienced what Jesus talks about when he says, you must be born again. That's pictured in the Old Testament like this in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will take the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will write my law on your heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments and do them. I'll make a deep change within. 
It'll have to do with my Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Of course, that, from our perspective, that new birth comes as we put our trust in Jesus Christ and surrender our will to Him. Now, God has to work that in our hearts, so we won't do it. But our conscious acts are to surrender our will and put our trust in Christ. And we begin to notice a change in our lives. We don't think the same way. We begin to change in our attitudes toward people and the way we look at things. Uh, that's the start of the generation, the production of that kind of love. Because love is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit produces within. And uh, yet we need then to walk in the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You walk in the Spirit as you rely on the Holy Spirit to enable you to do this. Rely on Him to enable you to love others when they're not being too loving or when you don't feel too loving. Uh, rely on Him to change you. And as you yield your will to the Spirit's promptings, uh, when you are convicted and you say, you know, I shouldn't have said that, I ought to do this, and I yield my will, that's yielding to the Spirit. And that's walking in the Spirit. As I walk yielded and I walk reliant, this love will be more and more generated. I'll be able to do that. Let me illustrate it from my own life. Uh, I grew up in a home where there was love, but there was not much demonstrative love. There was a lot of criticism in the home. And uh, <clears throat> my wife grew up in a home where there was a lot of romance. Uh, her... Uh, Father would uh, write love notes to her mother. He would fix breakfast. I never saw my father in the kitchen. Uh, he would help around the house. <clears throat> uh, he would uh, help with the dishes. And uh, if he's out, he saw his wife. He would uh, <clears throat> put a rose on the steering wheel. If he saw her car, he'd put a rose on the steering wheel of, a car, of her car and say, From a secret admirer, we got married. And uh, she did something wrong after several weeks. And I said, what in the Sam Hill are you doing? And she burst into tears. And I said, what is the matter with you? She said, you don't love me. I said, I married you. <laughs> she said, you don't write me any notes. I said, what notes? <laughs> I was in the ministry when I got married. All I did was add a wife. I didn't slow down a bit. I didn't help around the house. <clears throat> when we had babies, I didn't change a diaper. First two babies, I didn't change a diaper. I didn't feel the least bit guilty. That's your end of it. And uh, <laughs> and my wife began to get depressed. After, you know, you have what you call after-baby depression. It was really with Frank depression is what it was. And uh, she got so depressed, and this is, this is the truth, she got so depressed that I honestly thought that she was going to kill herself. And she got mean. I mean mean. And uh, I tried to help her. I said, sheep up. And that didn't seem to help. 
And uh, <clears throat> one day in the middle of all that, I read a little book entitled Calvary Road. And all the author did was he took 1 Corinthians 13 and applied it to a husband-wife relationship. And I read that, and it was like somebody hit me between the eyes with a baseball bat. I said, no wonder she's depressed. I haven't loved her with that kind of love. I've been the opposite of that. I have demanded my own way. I have been irritable and touchy. I haven't sought to meet her needs. And that's the solution. That's what God wants me to do. That's what he wants her to do too, but I can't work on her. I have to work on me. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to flesh that out. And I began to try to do it. That's the hardest thing I've tried to do in my life. Um, <clears throat> when you have little children, the crucial hour, of course, is 5.30. They're all hungry. They all need a bath. And um, she would say to me, you come home and help me. And I said, you can count on me. I'll be there. And then I'd get home at 7. I had to leave at 7.30. I walk in the house and she'd say, you're late. And I said, well, <clears throat> this guy came by the office. He had a gun. He was going to kill himself. I had to rustle it away from him. She said, that's no excuse. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> she said, the children are awake on, asleep on the floor. I said, well, I'll wake them up. She said, supper's cold. I said, I'll heat it up. She said, this is the third time this week you've done this. I said, shut up. Ooh. I blew it. And I'd run in the bathroom. That was the only place I could get away from dogs and kids. And I'd get down on my knees in the bathroom. And I'd say, God, I blew it. I didn't treat her in Christian love. I wasn't long-suffering. I wasn't kind. I was demanding. I was irritable. And then I'd go out and I'd say, Sweetheart, would you forgive me for not treating you in Christian love? And she said, You really didn't. And I said, Well, you weren't too loving yourself. Back in the bathroom, back... <laughs> Well, this went on, uh, this went on for <clears throat> about six weeks with no response on her part. And she'd tell this a little different, but I'm... <clears throat> and uh, one night, <clears throat> I don't remember what happened, but one night something happened and I blew it. And I said, sweetheart, please forgive me. I didn't treat you in Christian love. And she said, no. You forgive me. I didn't treat you in Christian love. That was a miracle. She didn't have the capacity to say that. Now notice what's happening. <clears throat> I've got the pattern, the standard, 1 Corinthians love, and I'm trying to flesh it out. Now she's beginning to get the pattern, and she's trying to flesh it out. And that's the name of the game. When we both are taking that as our standard, I'll never forget coming in one day, and she had taken cardboards out of shirts, and she'd written phrases out of 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind, love isn't selfish. And she had posted that on the inside of the closet door in the bedroom for herself to look at and to remind her. I said, oh, wonderful. She's trying to flesh that out. And see, that's the name of it. Right there, when we both get that standard and relying on the power of the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, that's walking in the Spirit, we try to live up to that standard. 
And the Spirit will generate love within. That's how it happens. And that's the solution. Paul elaborates on what it means to love in chapter 5 of Ephesians, in uh, verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet <clears throat> hated his own body, he says, uh, his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Uh, so, <clears throat> We're to love our wives as we love our bodies and nourish our bodies. Well, I tried to think through. What does it mean to nourish my wife and cherish my wife? What does she need? Um, and in my case, I thought, I began to realize that my wife needed for me to demonstrate affection for her in public. And uh, I guess uh, growing up, in the situation I did where there was not much demonstrative uh, action in the home <clears throat> or elsewhere, that uh, I felt very awkward uh, doing that. Had we, had we been somewhere and uh, a few of us standing around and my wife walked in the room, I might have acknowledged her presence. Go over, put my arm around her, give her a peck on the cheek. With you there, I felt like I was taking off my clothes. But not to do that, I began to realize, was like slapping her in the face. And so I said, you know, I'm going to have to do that. If I'm going to nourish and cherish my wife, I'm going to have to demonstrate affection for her in public. And I made up my mind I would do it. And the next time I was somewhere and she came in, a group of people there, I just went over and put my arm around her and took off my clothes. <clears throat> I just, <laughs> I just uh, turned 16 shades of red, but... Uh, I did it, and uh, I kept doing it, and as time went on, I got to where I, I sort of enjoyed it, <clears throat> and uh, and I kind of lopped over at home, and, and at home, maybe she'd be going down the hall, and I'd be going the other way, and I'd grab her, and I'd just give her a big bear hug, and kids would come from everywhere, and they'd say, let us in the squeeze together, and dogs would come, and... Uh, I said, my goodness, look at this. Everybody responds to this kind of affection. And if I'll make myself do this, which doesn't come naturally to me, my children won't grow up as inhibited as I've been in their ability to give and receive affection. Well, we've been in a series for four weeks on the family. Uh, one writer gives us a checklist of a good marriage. Both partners, and this kind of this is a sort of a review of all we've been over. Both partners have left their parents to establish their own independent family unit. Neither is unduly influenced by their families, and neither is emotionally bound to them. Partners are cleaving to one another, so that nothing on earth, besides the Lord, is so important to them as their relation to each other. They're growing in physical, emotional, and spiritual oneness, which includes Bible reading and prayer and church participation. They're enjoying the delights of romantic love. They have a strong view of the permanence of marriage and a steadfast faithfulness to one another. They help each other in all the details of living. They meet each other's needs and forgive each other freely so that they no longer feel alone. 
they relate in mutual love and submission, learning how to love one another by studying the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. And their marriage becomes a house of love so that it offers the right setting to rear and nurture children to minister to others also, to portray to the loves to the world something of Christ's love. Well, make love your aim. Let 1 Corinthians 13 be your standard. Plan ways that you can apply that to your marriage this week. Think, think it through, phrase by phrase. How can I flesh this out? I will be patient with my wife by. I will be kind by. I will resist being selfish, particularly in regard to. Just think it through. Our love also reaches out to others. We talked about the family for the father, the little card in your bulletin. Take that out and look at it. Because when we talk about uh, the family and we talk about uh, love being our standard, many of you were reached out to by someone else uh, who influenced your life spiritually, brought you into the church, and enabled you to become a participant in various ways, and it helped you, helped you in your relation to God and your relation to one another. And we want to do that. We want to reach out to others. Uh, we have this program, Family for the Father, that's designed to further that, to keep it before us. And I want to challenge you to be a part of that program. If you're already a part of the program, you don't need to fill this out. But if you haven't signed up for that program, why sign up? And uh, what you're saying is, I'm going to trust the Lord to use me, uh, use our family, to reach another family during the coming year. And we'll give you various activities that will help with that. But just fill this out, tear it off like this, and uh, we're going to take it up in a minute. Now, when I think about our duty to reach out to others and the privilege of it, a story comes to my mind. The story goes that uh, years ago, off the Pacific Northwest, a uh, ship had run against the rocks in a storm and was being battered and... <clears throat> And uh, some villagers from a local village had gathered, and a lifeboat had headed out for the ship. And everyone watched, wondering if they'd make it, wondering if the lifeboat would be swamped. And, and they saw it coming back, and uh, it was full. And as they got close, where they could shout, the people on the lifeboat shouted, and they said, We got every man but one. Someone needs to go back and get him. There wasn't room in the lifeboat. We told him someone would come. Send a boat. And one young man leapt forward and grabbed a boat and he said, I'll go. Who'll go with me? And his mother cried and he said, Son, don't go. Don't go, son. We lost your father at sea. Your brother William went off to sea and I've never heard from him since. You're all I've got left, Jim. Don't go. And Jim said, Mother, I've got to go. I've got to go. It's my duty. And another young man ran and jumped in the boat and they headed out and his mother stood there anxiously and wept and prayed. Everyone watched and see the little boat go out. It looked like just a shell as it was tossed around. Would they make it? And then they saw it heading back. And when they got close enough so they could shout, her son shouted and he said, We got him! We got him and tell mother, it's William, my brother! It's your brother out there that needs help. Let's go get him. Let's pray. 
As our hearts are bowed, uh, take a moment and think of whether the Lord would want you to be a part of this program. And, and if so, commit yourself to it. Fill out the little card. And uh, maybe you've never made a personal commitment to Christ. Or maybe uh, you have really not been fleshing out or seeking to flesh out that love toward others at the office or at home, wherever it may be. Commit yourself to think this through and to do it starting today in the power of God's Spirit. If you've never made a personal commitment, pray like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, I need cleansing and I need changing and I invite you into my life. Amen.